Hey there, this is screenwriter Andy Baker, and this is the Baker's Dozen podcast, where I deep dive into genre TV shows. Today, I'm going to take a look at Loki season two, episode one, Breaking Brad. One. One up, one down. So in this little feature here, I like to take a look at characters who are moving up for me, those that are moving down, and occasionally one that might exist somewhere in the middle. So this week, heading up towards number one with a bullet is Mobius. The way the character is written, he has heart, humor, humanity. He's well-written. I think they know this character through and through. He's got some real substance to him. And I do think by the time we get to the end of the season and we look back at his art, it'll be more substantive than anyone else's, including Loki. Down this week, I loved Obi last week and less so this episode. Not that the performance is weaker. It wasn't. I'm really enjoying the performance. But I just think it's a little bit dangerous to lean on him providing all of the humor. And I know that why they're doing it, because they're making Loki more serious and they still want to have some comedy throughout the six episodes. And Mobius provides some of that, but his sense of humor is softer, less laugh out loud. And as a result, Obi feels a bit broad to me, like the writers thought that he would bring the laughs while advancing the fix the loom storyline. This is a matter of degrees. It's still good, but I think they're maybe using too broad a brushstroke with Obi. And I do think that this is still all deflection, that we're going to find out that Obi has a much bigger role to play here and that he's more important to the overall storyline than perhaps they want us to believe so far. Anyway, I'm hoping that they will add a little more nuance to the character of Obi in the episodes upcoming. And then on the neutral scale, I can't be the only one who's resisting Loki turning into a good guy. This episode by design showed us Loki as a serious good guy. And you know, when we was with Sylvie, when he was with Mobius, but we also got to see glimpses of him as the God of mischief. So it's a transitional episode, but one that highlights and this is on me in that i'm resisting the character's change and maybe that's something that they want us to feel because loki himself is resisting it because he has these impulses within him but he is trying to be a better version of himself so i get it it's just not quite working for me yet but we'll see if the transition is more smooth in the four episodes that we have left. Dude. Jarring pace. So the first two episodes of a season, particularly a season that's only six episodes long, will be compared to one another pace-wise. And if you ask me, the shift was very stark this week. Now, it was deliberate 
because they wanted to do some very important things. They wanted to open it up to having some key conversations, to deepen relationships, to explore some themes. That's what episodes two and three tend to be about, particularly episode two. You have a frenetic opening, you establish a lot of storylines, and then we really want to dive into character stuff in the second episode when there wasn't a lot of room in the first episode. So I get all of that. But when the first episode is that frenetic, the shift is not only noticeable, but it also feels off. Like it's the gap between, right? When things are too fast and then slow down too much, the gap between, we notice it and it doesn't feel like it's of a piece. They don't feel like they go together quite as much as we would like them to. In the end, it makes it feel like they're not following through on the implied promise of the premiere, that we expect more of that frenetic pace. Because when you establish an element of the world, or in this case, the multiverse being destroyed, and then you slow down and the characters on screen aren't driven by that urgency, part of our watching experience is have you forgotten how serious things are right now? Why aren't you losing your mind? Why isn't there urgency? And some of that got lost in this episode. So I'll be very curious to find out if they reintroduce some of that urgency in episode three, because it was conspicuously absent here in episode two. Three. Saving money. Now, this wasn't exactly a bottle episode. But it did use a lot of standing sets. We had the control room, the loom room. We had other locations, which were clearly sets, the interrogation room, even the scenes set in, what was it, 1977? That was very much a backlot sequence. Uh, running through those tunnels, anytime you have a long extended sequence where people are running through relatively nondescript locations, they're saying to you, we spent a lot of money in episode one on all of those really cool special effects with the loom. So we need to dial it back here in episode two, which is why we got what we got. I'm not saying it's bad. It was just noticeable. Again, it's that gap when you go so big in episode one and then really slow it down in episode two and then really sort of tighten up on your locations. We notice this and uh, it doesn't feel like they're the same show to some degree. Again, like the stylistic choices, set design and everything, it's all of a piece and it's great. It's beautiful. I love looking at it, but it's more that when the world feels expansive in the first episode and then the second one, it feels really tight and very controlled, very backlot, very standing set we notice the difference and it feels a little more claustrophobic and part of that again by design but part of that is also the choices they had to make when they set out the six episodes and they mapped it out that this was going to be an episode budget wise which wouldn't get out of control on them four overarching theme number one identity so Believe it or not, when you're doing a TV show, you are aiming to say something, not just entertain. You will introduce ideas, themes that you want to explore. 
And very clearly this episode, when they slowed things down, really wanted to dive into this question and theme of identity. Who are these characters? Who were they before they became variant? Who are they now? And who do they want to be moving forward? Because they're going to end up having to choose or having the opportunity to choose where they go and who they want to be now that the branches exist, that he who remains is no longer controlling the sacred timeline. Of course, it's very obvious they put it very much on the surface that Loki is changing and we have Sylvie. Chances are she's going to try out changing because again, she is a Loki variant. But we're going to end up comparing the growth curve, the character arc of Loki to Sylvie, because at their heart, they're supposed to be the same character, but they can't follow the same path. And so Sylvie is going to probably resist the change more than Loki. She won't grow. She, at least one of them is going to embrace being a villain. And because the show is called Loki and we are on Loki's journey, we expect him to be the one who changes and want her to change too. Only she will resist it and leave us in a place at the end of season two where they've grown apart and heck, maybe even Sylvie gets built up as a villain for down the road. Mobius is the most interesting on this path of identity. I keep coming back to, just as I did last week, looking at character names and Mobius, you know, the meaning of his name, this infinite loop of going in one direction, yet always returning and folding back in on itself. In a way, it's kind of a variation on the Ouroboros that we talked about last week. It's this sense of the infinite. And that Mobius is going to, they've introduced it in the storyline. He has got to see who he could have been. There's going to be a jet ski involved and we're going to see him probably ride a jet ski and be out on a beautiful lake. And maybe he's going to think that he's missing out on this life because he's told us what he doesn't want to see is if it was a good life that he got pulled out of. Because he could deal with it if it was bad, but if it was good, that's what he doesn't want rattling around in his head, right? It's such a great moment. It's such a great observation. It's really intriguing. But is his arc going to be realizing that he wasn't happy in that life? It was lacking purpose and meaning, which the TVA gave to him. And so at the end, when they start talking about the time loom and the sacred timeline and these other branches and however they choose to end that narrative arc, could he be presented with the possibility of going back to that quote unquote perfect life? And what would he choose? And not only do we want Owen Wilson back in season three, but it's built into his character that he is going to discover like he's going to have the opportunity to have this life and chooses not to and returns to the TVA because that's what has meaning for him now, but he's going to have a choice and it's going to be very interesting to see him wrestle with that choice. One other thought about this theme of identity, 
it felt odd to me that X5 became the vehicle for pushing Loki and Mobius on their identity issues. We barely met that character in episode one, and now suddenly he's got a deep read on them both, so much so that he can provoke this kind of response. They snuck in one line there about how he's really good at getting under people's skins, but that's a tell-don't-show kind of line. It doesn't really justify why this character, of all people, could get Loki and Mobius to be as introspective as they are forced to be in that scene. X5 just isn't important enough yet in this story to play that kind of role. So I found it a very interesting choice that they decided to give that kind of weight to him, despite not having as much substance as we would expect from a character who could make Loki and Mobius feel this way. Five. The problem with powers. So we finally got to see Loki get back to using his powers in this episode. Obviously fun. He replicated those illusions of himself. The shadows grabbed X5. But what this introduces is the Superman problem. So what is the Superman problem? When Superman, we know his array of powers and he has the laser eye vision. And so the viewer slash reader of comic books, anyone who's a Superman fan, whenever Superman gets into a predicament that he could perhaps use those eye lasers, why doesn't he use them more? Anytime it isn't done, it feels like a convenient narrative overlooking of this kind of power. As it relates to Loki, the multiple Loki illusion that he uses in the chase sequence with X5 would have worked pretty well in the fight that he had with Dox's agents, and so would, frankly, using the shadow to grab people. But Loki didn't use those powers. Why not? Why doesn't he dig into his bag of tricks every time he's in some sort of conflict? So it's just one of those things that writers always have to be mindful of when they really remind the viewer that these powers are in play. You have to answer the question, why wouldn't they use those powers in the moments where they would be useful? And they introduced another one in that fight with Dox's agents where Loki and Sylvie link hands and then they blast with more power. We don't know what the rules are around that. We don't really know how and why they know that this works as well as it does. But now anytime we see them together and they're in some sort of danger, we will wonder why don't they immediately link up and do that. So I'll be curious to watch how the writers handle that because frankly, Anytime you work on a show where powers are in play, they really need to be on the whiteboard permanently, put them in the upper right-hand corner in a big old box saying, okay, why aren't these used in this scene? And every time you add a power or level up a power or show some nuance with that power, you need to put that into the box because your viewers, viewers are so smart now. They always were, but they're even more now with genre stuff. And they have expectations going into the scene. They know what these characters are capable of. And they will be shouting at their screen if they don't do the things that they should do 
given the powers that they have, unless there is a strong reason not to. And so narratively, you have an obligation to address those power issues and in every scene where they might possibly get used. Six. Six. Big, small thing. Now, this is a small thing, but a big thing at the same time. We know what channel this is on. It's on Disney. Disney bought Marvel. And we know that Disney will not show us X5 getting squished in that box. As an end result, we know that there's no tension in that scene. We know that he is going to survive. We know that exactly how that scene is going to play out. The box will get smaller and smaller, and then he'll cave to that pressure, even though there's pressure for him, maybe, but there's no pressure for us as a viewer. We know that there's no true jeopardy here. And frankly, when you know that because of the channel that it's on in the writer's room, you need to workshop more ideas of how you get X5 to tell Loki and Mobius what they want to know. Because if there's no tension for the viewer and all you're doing is making the box smaller and smaller and X5 saying, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It doesn't work as a scene because there's no real danger there. So need to come up with other ways to, when you're in a Disney show, to create pressure for a character. Seven. Page versus stage. Now, on the page, the scene where all the branches blew up and trillions of people died, that might have worked in the script. But visually on screen, seeing a room full of actors stare at an old computer screen with low-res graphics and thinking that this is a tragedy, the moment just doesn't land. It's not visual enough, so it isn't visceral enough. We don't know anybody in those branches. We don't care. This is telling versus showing. There's no stakes here. Again, this is something in the writer's room where they need to fully imagine what are we seeing on screen and why will it have the emotional power that we want it to have? We need to know more characters in those branches. And I know in a six episode season, you're not going to be able to explore a lot of that. But how much more powerful is it if actually Sylvie's timeline is one of the branches that is going to be threatened here? And we actually have gotten to know the kid who works at McDonald's. Suddenly there's someone we could lose. We could see someone die and feel something. We don't feel anything when we look at that screen along with these characters. And they tried to act the heck out of it. There was some very interesting composition of the characters looking at the screen and some looking away. But it is not the tragedy that they want it to be. If this was a novel and we can go inside the heads of all of these characters, great. Yeah, could have been really powerful. But probably not because, again, we don't know anybody on these branches. We don't know. We don't see anything happen besides some low-res graphics. I, such a rough choice. And it wasn't what they wanted it to be. And it could have been a great, powerful moment. But how they shaped it, how they built up to it, and how they delivered on it, it just didn't work. Eight. Fall into the gap. There's a lot missing. From this episode. I'm sure I'm not the only one who, when you got to the end of the episode, you're thinking, did I miss episode two? Is this episode three? There's a whole bunch of stuff 
happened off screen. Example, X5 went from being a hard ass with Docs to a movie star. So between episodes, he went hunting for Sylvie, found her, went rogue, and then Docs continued with the plan, seemingly with no concern over losing her top agent. And then he got to 1977, became a big movie star, and then finally pinged on the TVA radar enough for Loki and Mobius to go after him. That's a lot that happened between episodes. And throw away explanatory lines like Brad's meteoric rise doesn't do enough to have us understand how we got to where we got. And really, again, it's a matter of degrees. Having mysteries contained within narrative gaps, that's a fun narrative device. Shows do it all the time. But the gaps can't be that big. It just leads to confusion. And we also care a lot less when it's a character that was largely insignificant until now. Again, X5 and now Brad, we barely knew him. And now we're meant to care, like, how did this character get to this point? And, and why does it even matter? And then there was another throwaway tell, don't show line to explain away X5 and the narrative choices that they made. They just said he's a good hunter, just said it in passing. And apparently that explains why he could find Sylvie so quickly before going rogue. And what does even going rogue look like? Like he found her and then just walked away, hopped through the door and then jumped to 1977. Like so much happened and they just want to explain it away with a couple of lines. And again, six episode problem. I get it, but it didn't work. It just led to confusion and making us care just a little bit less. And that's one of the art form of writing a series and a season of TV, you're not going to be able to shoot everything you want. You're not going to be able to say everything you want. Not every moment that you imagine is going to get into the story. You just have to plug as many leaks as you can, and you can't lose your audience by having those big gaps and, you know, the ship continues to leak. Eventually it will sink if there are too many holes. And right now, to me, Loki is starting to take on water. Nine. The pieces need to fit. Sylvie's chilly reception of Loki didn't fit what had happened at the end of season one, at least to me. Yes, there was some betrayal. Loki tried to stop her from getting revenge on He Who Remains for culling her timeline and killing the people she loved. But she also did an extremely selfish thing unleashing all of the Kangs who could now exist now that there's multiple branching timelines. All of existence is now in jeopardy because of her choice. If anything, when Loki and Sylvie come together, there should be a mutual chill or at least an awkward conversation around why both of them did what they did. But this was very one-sided where she was just so cold and had an attitude like, prove yourself to me, explain yourself to me. And I didn't think that was fair to Loki and his characterization. Their relationship is a lot more complex than that, but we wouldn't know that from how this very important scene was written. Feels to me like needed another draft or two to really get to the heart of who these two characters are with one another. And that really, again, is the art of writing good television and writing great characters 
is they are burdened by everything that has come before and they need to talk to one another, remembering as we humans do everything that has happened between you, the good and the bad, and have that inform not only what they're saying, but how they're acting around one another and how they're treating one another. And this scene felt like needed for history between the two of them to give more weight and more reality to how they're treating one another. 10. The roadmap. Now we saw OB designing the device that will keep the time loom working. And as a result, we've been given a roadmap that's a lot like a video game side quest. We need to find Miss Minutes or a variation of Kang. Eventually both are going to get involved so that they can be brought back to the TVA, so that they can open the doors to the time loom, so that Loki presumably will take the device out into the super dangerous time loom area and install it. Dox's bombs bought them some time, but the ticking clock is still there. And it feels like there's going to be a big old time crunch right at the end with the doors opened in the nick of time and the device getting into place at the last second. And it's going to be a suicide mission for whoever goes out there. But will it be a suicide mission or will they end up just getting pulled into one of the branching timelines? It'll be interesting to see what they do with that. But we have been told and given a roadmap for the next four episodes about Obi, the Time Loom, Miss Minutes, Kang, or He Who Remains, or whatever you want to call him, and leading up to the conclusion where all of these things come together, doors get opened, and we get the conclusion that they promised us in the very first episode and have now told us almost precisely how we're going to get there. 11. Villain problem. So far this season, the antagonism has come from Docs, but she really isn't formidable enough. She hasn't been on screen enough and she just yells and we don't feel like she's an intimidating antagonistic force. X5 also, he went from mild source of irritation to branching timeline sidekick completely neutered as any sort of force of antagonism. Sylvie is a source of consternation, but not conflict. We've heard about Renslayer, but not seen her. Miss Minutes is absent. Kang is he who remains off screen. And we're one third of the way through this thing. Now, the whole point of this season is that Sylvie created an existential threat. Uh, but you wouldn't know it from a complete lack of antagonistic presence. What's really missing right now is some sense of dread. And going back to what I was saying earlier about there being urgency, no one's acting like they're in danger in this episode, that there's anything to be afraid of. They're just jumping around through time again. It's such an odd choice. There isn't enough pressure. And a big part of that is we don't know who our antagonist is going to be. Yes, there's supposed to be a whole bunch of Kangs coming, but are they? Renslayer was a problem and we're hearing her name, but what are we going to encounter her? Miss Minutes is gone. And if you've seen the trailer, you know, Miss Minutes is going to be getting cranky. 
but is Miss Minutes going to be an antagonist? We don't know. And this is such an odd choice because by the time you hit a third of the way through your story, your antagonist just, they can't only be names. We need to see them. And I imagine they will in episode three, but by then it's almost too late already. Twelve. All themes, great and small. Now, if identity is the more personal theme of the season, there are larger ones afoot. And this is theme number two, specifically the nature of existence and how we deal with the removal of relevance. The TVA's sole purpose was to protect the sacred timeline. So what is the TVA if every timeline is allowed to exist? Everyone involved with the TVA is going to need to ask themselves some pretty hard questions. Were they the bad guys this whole time? Did they do bad things without knowing it? What does life mean if the very core of your perception of the universe, that there is something sacred above all other possible truths, is no longer a shared belief? It's like finding out that the earth revolves around the sun. How do you reconcile that with what you've believed all of your life? Something foundational, something you've based all of your choices on. Every member of the TVA will be called on by or at the end of the season to either stay with whatever the TVA will become in this new existence. And what will be their purpose? To help all branches exist? Will there be TVAs in other timelines? Or will they opt out and just return to a life of ignorance and anonymity where they can wrestle with who they once were and all they did in the name of the sacred timeline? Some characters are going to cling to the past. Docs, He Who Remains, Renslayer, while Loki and Mobius adapt. But some are going to have to surprise us with how they deal with this. And to me, the key character to watch along those lines is B-15. 13. High school English. And we've all encountered those themes that our English teachers said were at the heart of all stories. Man versus man, man versus himself. And one of the big ones, and this is our theme number three, fate versus free will. And the ambition of this show, even if it's only mentioned in passing, is to explore that idea. Yep. Sophocles by way of Mark. Loki and Sylvie discuss what she did when she killed He Who Remains. She reintroduced free will into the universe. There was no longer one timeline, but infinite branching, so every possibility can now exist. And do we want that freedom? We say that we do, but there is comfort in being told that there is a divine plan. Religion and faith depend on it. We want order and meaning and design. It absolves us of guilt. It helps us cope with tragedy and pain. To think that there is nothing guiding us, that the only truth is the flow of time, that's petrifying liberating too. And how fascinating that characters in a story who themselves don't have free will, they're controlled by the imaginations of others. These characters are the ones who are exploring this idea of fate versus free will. Everything they say and do is directed by an omnipotent force outside of their existence or even their ability to conceive. And yet they feel like they have free will. 
So despite my issues with a great many things in this episode, the fact that I am thinking about this, fate versus free will, days after I watched the episode, I admire what they're trying to do and trying to say, even if I disagree with much of how they're trying to say it. Okay, that's it for this week. I would ask one thing of you if you got here to the end, and that's just to recommend this show to anyone who wants to deep dive. And one other heads up, at some point in early November, I will be doing a one-shot podcast on the show Invincible, which is really good. It's on Amazon, and they're going to be dropping the first half of the second season I believe on November 3rd. And so I will drop a podcast on that one in the midst of doing these Loki episodes and before Monarch Legacy of Monsters comes out. So anyway, I look forward to talking to you next week and yeah, recommend the show to somebody else. All right. Hope you're well and I'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.